I'm Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist. And this is a space for young people, families, and professionals who want to understand neurodiversity and mental illness better. I'm here to help you make sense of the most complex of issues in the simplest of ways. Let me walk you through topics that are important to you, from autism to trauma and from depression to self-harm. In this podcast, I'll bring you expertise, explain the science and equip you with practical tips and knowledge. Join me, Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, for 30 minutes every Wednesday on all listening platforms. Hi. Today we're talking about tics. And if you have heard this word before from your healthcare professional or from a friend, you'll probably imagine immediately somebody who's making like movements with their face or uh, jerking their knees or doing something with their hands. And you won't automatically think about a child doing that kind of thing. You're thinking about someone who's an adult. And for a lot of parents who have children or young people who are struggling with tics, it's a bit odd at the beginning. And what parents keep telling me is that we don't notice when it first happens, especially that it starts from a very early age. So tics are stigmatized, they are mystified, and people often don't know what to do with them. So I'm going to try and break it down to you today. And I'm going to start with what are tics and why they happen, how they happen, and what to do about them. So let's dive straight through. And before I do that, I want to do my weekly acknowledgement of what's happening in the world and specifically in Gaza. And I've got nothing but my voice. So every week I'm going to try to mention this and ask for thoughts and prayers from people because it's it's a very difficult situation. It's a very big privilege that I have sitting here safely talking to you. Let's start off and talk about what are ticks. So Tics is a fancy word that describes a movement that your body will do on your behalf that you can't really control, but you have kind of a premonition before it happens. So think of it like a sneeze or a cough. You know when it's coming, you can't really stop it, you can suppress it to a degree, but then it's going to come out or it's going to affect you negatively after if you stop it completely. So the way that people describe tics is that I can feel it coming and I can't really stop it. I can't do anything about it. And if I try to hold it in, I have to do something else to try and stop myself. I will feel a degree of distress building up. And if I have to do this for a significant amount of time, then I'll have to let it all out. And this has a fancy name. Okay. So that feeling of building up in your body, that is called a premonitory urge. So that's the fancy name for it. And the the overflow of ticks when you get home after a long day at school where you've been trying to suppress those ticks for so long is called a purge. So you go home and you just tick and tick and tick and tick and tick because you just want to get that out. 
And this is where there is an argument of, is this voluntary or is this involuntary? So is there control or isn't there? And we don't really know. All we've got is the experience of people. So it looks like from the research that's done about this and from what people keep saying in terms of personal experience is that it feels that there is a degree of control, not full control. So you can suppress it as much as you can suppress a sneeze or a cough. But really, the the hallmark of a tick is that it will, um, you'll feel the urge coming. You'll feel, some people will feel a body bodily sensation, like a tingling or something, a sensory thing coming along to to tell them that the tick is going to happen. And then it just happens. It just happens. And if you try and stop it, that urge will build and build and build. And you'll either give in, uh, try to hide the tick by making a motion or hiding your face or pretending like you were, you know, just doing your hair or something. You're going to try to hide it. Or you're going to try to suppress it a little bit more and then need to purge after. And the way that ticks are, it's very different from person to a, to to from one person to another. So there isn't one description of ticks that can fit anybody. So ticks come in two types, simple or complex. So a simple tick is something that involves one thing. So let's say a a uh, clearing your throat repeatedly that that's a simple tick because it's a one motion right it's a one thing um, but if you say a word that's a complex one because it requires a pattern of of things that your body has to engage in and your body has to do so that's a complex one and the other classification of ticks is that it's either something in your voice that your voice will do, or it's something that your body will do. So it's either vocal or motor is is the um, fancy name for that. And the classification of this or trying to give things name or categorize them is important for uh, people when they're making diagnoses, right? So you'll hear things going around like a tick disorder, Tourette's, disorder, Tourette's syndrome, um, persistent tick disorder. Just Just ignore the names for a minute because that's really um in my view irrelevant to the patient experiences it's important to classify because um it gives you a description of how long the ticks are there it's kind of code between professionals so they can know well how long has this been going on um what kind of ticks are there and 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 so forth so it's important from a diagnostic point of view but as we're going to discuss in a minute the treatment really doesn't change a lot from one type to another and it looks like most patients will have a degree most people will experience kind of um a range of ticks across their lifespan so the 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 typical story of ticks is one where there are some movements, some simple involuntary movements that will pop up in early childhood, somewhere between four and six. And for most people, they kind of go up and down, they wax and wane. So there will be periods where the ticks are really strong and there, there will be periods where they're almost in, unnoticeable. And they change in their type 
over time. So uh, some people, a common one is people will describe, well, there was frequent blinking or grimacing or um, something with the voice or something like a, like a throat clearing or something that feels like a stammer, for example. And then that will um, come and go. But then in the middle, there will be other things that come and go as well. So um, there will be other movements. Sometimes the simple ones come first and then the complex ones develop later. And the the course goes on like that until you hit somewhere near 10 to 12 of age. And for some reason, most people experience a worsening at that age. And it tends to quiet down thereafter. And it's not clear why that happens because um, we don't know why tics happen in the first place. There is evidence that, you know, um, it affects parts of the brain. So we know that it's probably related to all of the uh, pathways and wiring in your brain that has to do with controlling your movements. So that we know. And we know that they're, they're also related to other uh, disorders and to neurodiversity. So ticks are very closely related, and we're going to talk about treatment in a minute and mention that again, but ticks seem to be closely related to ADHD and ASD, so ADHD and autism. And they seem to be very closely, closely related to OCD as well, uh, as well as other things like depression and anxiety. And in terms of the neurodiversity, so ADHD and ASD, it, it is possible that they are related in cause. So maybe they're related in where in the brain that happens. OCD, perhaps, but it's all speculation at this stage. We don't know is the short and long answer. And it's, it's a fascinating area of study, but no one has really um, come out with an answer of, oh, this is the part of the brain that's completely responsible. Because what it looks like is that children's brains and generally people's brains are not kind of bordered. There aren't specific areas that are responsible for specific things. It looks like most of the work is happening in railways within the brain. Um, again, it's an area of study, so we don't know. and. The, the other thing that is important to understand about how ticks go through life is that when you think about children turning 10, 11, or 12, you're thinking about a transition in education for most children. So you're thinking about a move from elementary or primary school to, um, to middle school or to high school. So it depends. So th there is a factor. Um, of is the environment more stressful at this age? Is it more difficult for children at that age? Because there is a big relation between ticks and your mental state. So when we're going to talk about therapy, for example, for this, part of the therapy is understanding the pattern, the relationship between the ticks and the environment and what your, your day looks like and how you feel in your body. So it could be that the waxing and waning is related to what you're going through. And it could be that the peaking of symptoms at the age of 10 to 12 has to do with that environmental pressure. The answer is 
We don't know. And it's very different from one child to another. Now, um, let's think about what we look at when we're trying to, to examine a child with tics. So the first thing that you want to know as a parent is how long has this been happening? And this is a very hard one, you see, because sometimes they're so subtle and parents often are not looking. So a lot of the time parents will say, you know, I've not noticed anything until they got really worse or until school had said something to me. So unless they're really, really bad, then some parents will completely miss when they started. And it's often helpful to ask school or or ask the child if they're able to describe their own experience. So so thinking about the onset is important. Trying to to take inventory of what exactly is happening. So when I'm seeing patients with with ticks, what I use is a little like tool. We call it the Yale tool. Or sometimes I'll do that, you know, off the uh, off the um, off my memory, and we'll try and make a list of what are the ticks that are happening. What what are the ticks that have persevered through life and what are happening right now what are the most distressing so usually people will come up with you know six or uh, ten types of ticks and they'll pick like the top three that are really distressing for them and then we'll have a think about onset and we'll have a think about how often they happen now most of the time um, by the time a, psychiatr- a psychiatrist is seeing a child with tics, they've been already assessed by a neurologist or a pediatrician with an interest in neurology or a pediatric neurologist. So someone has already excluded movement disorders. But if that's not the case, what I want to know is that have we excluded movement disorders, other things? So some things will look like tics, but they were they won't be tics, you know, like dystonia, something, you know, fancy, fancy names that describe unusual movements. One of them is called dystonia, where um, you know, the body is is either too stiff or has odd um movements. Uh, dyskinesia is another one, chorea is some uh, so there's a few things that you want to exclude in terms of physical health. You also want to think about, um, is this happening during sleep? So if this is happening during sleep, I want to get a neurologist to look at the uh, look at your child and think about is there something odd going on and the third thing that i i look for is there any other change that happened with the onset so is there any difference in your um your child's ability like your child's cognitive ability their their ability to understand or their ability to speak or their their ability to look after themselves so is this tick happening just out of the blue with something else or happening just by itself? Now, the other thing is that, remember when I said it's the ticks are very closely related to ADHD and ASD? It is, there's such a strong connection that I, I think it's, it's quite unlikely when I see children with ticks that there won't be something else in the background. And it's the 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 connection is so close that we have to make that evaluation when you when we see a young person or a child with tics, then I have to look for ADHD or ASD. Often with ADHD, it's also 
helpful. It's helpful to understand why the tics are happening, but also it's helpful because sometimes treating the ADHD properly reduces the tics. So if you if you find out that you know if I find out that child has ADHD with their main complaint being tics, then I'll have that conversation with the parents. You know what? There's a lot of evidence conflicting about treating ADHD and tics, and there's a lot of, you know, research in this. But what we know is that if you help the child um, get better in terms of ADHD symptoms, in terms of the stress and chaos that ADHD symptoms cause, the tics will fall into place by virtue of that control. So sometimes figuring out that your child has ADHD in the middle of a tick assessment is a win-win because then you're treating both. And finding out about ASD is helpful because, and remember when I told you about the premonitory urge or those feelings before a tick happens? Now I'm talking to you about a child who is old enough and articulate enough to describe those feelings. In a lot of situations, it's hard. It's really hard to to get that out of a child. And, and we try and we do exercises and all sorts, but often it's very hard to get the child to describe this or to be conscious of it. Um, So sometimes we fall into a situation where we're not sure if this is a tick, if this is kind of a a mannerism of something of like a stimulating, some people will call it stimming, something that you do to calm your senses, which is common with children with ASD or with learning disability. And the third thing that we look at is OCD, because sometimes these movements are rather compulsions. And the difference between compulsions and tics is a um, is a clear one on, uh, you know, on paper. In reality, when you've got a child in the room who is distressed and who's finding it hard to trust a professional and who's not been asked these questions before, it's very hard. It's really, really hard. It's like, it feels like nitpicking. And often we have the conversation about maybe working towards trying to unpick this. So having multiple sessions of assessment, to try and unpick this, to build a rapport, to build an understanding, to build a consciousness or self-awareness in the child. But the difference, the theoretical difference, so let's talk about a child who's articulate and who, who's self-aware enough about this. The, the difference seems very clear because if it is a compulsion, then the first experience will be, I need to do this movement, right? And it is it does not feel like a, like a sneeze coming up. It does not feel like an urge. It feels like a thought, something that's telling me that I need to blink my eyes three times. And this thought will probably also include a consequence. So it'll also tell me that if I fail to blink my eyes three times, something bad might happen to someone I love or to my eyes. And often this thought will be either believed by the child or not believed by the child. 
So it has a fancy name, egocentonic, which literally means, you know, in synchrony with yourself. So do you believe this thought to be true? Do you believe that you have to blink three times? Or is it egodystonic? So is it something that you don't believe, but still you feel compelled to to follow that thought, to comply with that thought? And then the compulsion comes out, right? So you have to do this or else you're going to get really, really, really distressed after, right? So, so in that sense, you can describe compulsions as slightly more voluntary in that it is less like a sneeze and more like I can control this. Uh, it doesn't have to happen if that makes sense. There is a degree of, I I want to do this to prevent my distress, or I want to do this to prevent something bad from happening, or I want to do this in response to that intrusive thought or that obsession. So you see why the difference is so subtle and it's very tricky. It's really tricky. Sometimes I feel ridiculous having these conversations with children. Trying to unpick this is helpful at the treatment end because you know then what you're dealing with. And are you targeting OCD, which has a whole different treatment path, or are you targeting tics, which has a whole different treatment path? And then you have the other player, which is depression and anxiety. And then you have, um, that's also very, very common with children with tics. And it's a question of chicken or egg. So did I get anxious first? And that's triggering a um, an exacerbation, a worsening of my tics. Or am I get, uh, getting anxious because my tics are drawing attention to me or, it, or it's making people bully me or um, it's making me feel embarrassed um, at school. It's, teachers are not understanding. So either or... We have to think in those times about what are we prioritizing? Are we treating the anxiety first or are we treating uh, something else first? A typical child that I would see with tics has probably a lot of what I just said. So probably will have a degree of, of low mood, will have a degree of anxiety, will have a degree of, um, of neurodiversity, one if not all. And that's the... That's not atypical. That would not be something that would be unusual or would scare me because that's really usual. And and that's why it's really helpful. And all the evidence points to the importance of education, the importance of your health professional sitting you down and trying to explain all of this stuff and explain what it means to you. So if you're the young person, if you're the child, somebody telling you what it, this means, and if you're the parent telling you what this means, how it applies to you, what is your child likely to have or not have? And then you make a collaborative decision on what are you targeting first? What are you doing first, right? So I'll tell you what treatment we think about when we're trying to target ticks. And and again, I'm telling you this because it's important to understand, but that's not what will happen as a first step for all children. 
So for a lot of children, what will happen as a first step is treating all of the other things because those are easier to treat. So it's easier to treat ADHD compared to tics because it's a pill, because it's it's stuff that people can do. It's easy. Most teachers are aware of how to manage ADHD. That's easier. And it's easier to treat um, anxiety. It's easier to try medication for anxiety than to try medication for tics. So, so you see, sometimes you won't start with tics. But if you do get to the tics treatment, your best... Um, your best treatment really is education. So education comes one, two, three, four, five on that list. And part of that education, there's a lot of evidence that points to education at schools. So explaining to teachers what tics is and having teachers that understand how to manage tics, knowing that, for example, you don't point out a tic, you allow it to happen, and knowing that you need to understand that kids will need to purge so if they hold it together because they have to, because they're on the spot, they're answering a question or they're at the board, then they're going to need space to purge. They're going to need to be held at a different standard. You can't expect a child with tics to sit still for however long. You need to give them space to walk, to let it out, to, to have a bit of a, of a, of a purge. And, and that's important in terms of psychoeducation. And there, there had been research about psychoeducation for schools, for whole schools, teachers and students, and that had had a good effect on, on, um, on outcomes for children and how they coped. So education is really important. And that leads me to the second part, which is therapy. So the therapy for uh, ticks, the evidence-based one, is something called a long one. It's called CBIT. Ignore that. The most common um, or the main part of it is called something called habit reversal, right? So habit reversal is one component um, of the behavioral intervention for ticks, which is CBIT, right? And that's literally part psychoeducation and part something called, you know, tick mapping, where you look at how often the tick is happening, when is it happening, what is happening when the tick is happening. So what is the environmental trigger? What's making it better? What's making it worse? And if it's better at if it's better at home, when is it better at home? Is light a factor? Is noise a factor? Is anxiety a factor? Is people pointing it out a factor? And and if it's at school, is it a particular teacher? Is it a particular class? Um, what helps? Does space help? Does moving about help? What makes it better and what makes it worse? And also build a degree of awareness within the child. So knowing that it's okay to have a tick and it's it's I know when it when I, I feel the urge, I know that that's my tick coming on. I know what to do when um, when it comes on in terms of relieving it. And you get taught things like relaxation techniques and things that help you just reduce your distress a bit and help you manage that tick. So habit reversal is one of the best ways to manage it. And often it's not like, it's not a one-off. Some people will need reminders and boosters with that, but it, it, it is really helpful. And if you compare how helpful it is to the medication line, it is very helpful compared to medication. So medication is is not brilliant for ticks. And there is a risk uh, benefit 
weighing that happens. So there, uh, the, the medications that usually help ticks are antipsychotics. And um, antipsychotics have that name because they originally were made for, for psychosis, but actually we use them for a lot of stuff. But antipsychotics are helpful and something called guanfacine or clonidine, which are antihypertensive anti medications that incidentally help ADHD and help, help ticks. So these are, you know, some of the best medications out there to help with ticks, but they have really persistent side effects. And when you think about ticks, ticks are rather chronic journeys. They're rather lifelong journeys where you're going to have periods of no ticks or very, very minimal ticks and then periods where it's worse. So you're kind of expecting this child to grow with the medication. And you're um, asking them to endure side effects and monitoring for these medications. So you have to have a good case of why you're going to take that risk or, or take that, you know, to pay that um, in terms of effort and time and risked side effects. So you have to have a think about whether the ticks are getting to a point where you can tolerate them, you cannot function with them, and you have to use something and take that risk and to try and dampen them. And usually what we do is try and dampen the ticks while we're putting the patient through therapy for them as well. So you do both um, to get proper lasting effects, really. And the, the, the rule of thumb here is if there is something else around the ticks, that you can treat, treat it. So even people who have an ADHD and, you know, ADHD medications on the tin, they'll, they'll say you know, they make ticks worse. There is conflicting evidence around this. So sometimes I'll make an informed decision um, with, the, with the child and the family about, you know, maybe we should try ADHD medication. And to date, knock on wood, I've not had a situation where stimulants had made ticks worse. In most cases, stimulants had managed ADHD properly to a degree where the distress is manageable and the child is more able to manage their ticks. So in short, if there is something else going on around ticks, get that sorted and and then think about therapy as a priority. Think about medication as a second option. And think with your healthcare provider about how long you want to be on medication and what are the targets. The, the thing that I would say to a parent is while you're getting help for that or, um, or before, while you're waiting for help for ticks, what I would say is write down the ticks, keep an inventory of what is happening and when it's ha is it happening and when that started. I'm going to close by mentioning pandas really quickly because sometimes I get questions about pandas. Now, pandas is, um, is the kind of illness where it, 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 ignore the name and ignore the, the fancy science behind it. In short, it's a group of symptoms, ticks, OCD, anxiety, and things that tend to happen um, 
in that area, in that neurotic part of the brain where things happen very loudly, it looks like it's a particular area of the brain that controls emotions, anxiety, and movements. Um, and these illnesses happen in close relation to a particular infection, a particular throat infection, a streptococcal infection. What we know is that this autoimmune reaction, so basically what happens is that you get the infection, your body overreacts to it, it produces a lot of antibodies. And these antibodies happen to trigger parts of your body that it really shouldn't, it attacks parts of your body that it really shouldn't. And I'm going to do an episode about this at some point, but it's important to know that there isn't an established treatment for pandas at the moment and it's not and when we assess sticks we also make sure to assess any close relation to any kind of infection not just streptococcal because um, weird and wonderful autoimmune reactions do happen after all sorts of infections and sometimes if it's close enough to in time to the infection this information is really valuable because if it's happening too soon after then you can potentially get immunological treatment for that and and do an antibody washout but if you find out down the line and this is a retrospective diagnosis it really doesn't change the trajectory there is research in this area that's going on and it's really it is really a a messy area in research because not a lot of professionals that I've seen would say that they've seen a case of pandas or they've managed a case of pandas confidently. Um, there is a lot of research about trial medication for um, for pandas, for established diagnoses of pandas out of uh, the United States. And that's an area to watch. But if you're being seen down the line, if you're seeing, if you're being seen in a, a year or two years after the the index infection that you think might be responsible, it really doesn't change the course of treatment. You still tr treat the whatever illness you have, ticks or OCD, properly, um, and and the retrospective. Um, suspicion of this being related to an infection in the past is not at the moment um, impactful on the treatment plan. So it doesn't really affect the treatment plan at the moment. There's no evidence to to entice us to change treatment plans in in that sense. So if your child had ticks out of the blue when they are eight. And it's closely related to an infection. It happened literally the week or in the month after a severe infection. And and it's it's that clear, then that's a different story. That's a completely different story. But if it's something that we're looking at retrospectively, there's very limited evidence to support any change in treatment plan in that sense right now. It's a growing area of research. I just wanted to 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 point that out because I've been asked about pandas recently. And it is interesting to me, and I want to hear people's opinions about ticks management and pandas and your personal experiences as well. So I'm putting the social media contacts on the description. So go ahead, look at them, uh, send in your opinions and let us know what you think, because it would be helpful if people are interested in pandas to um to see what people want to hear about and come up with a chat about that. So today, I took you on a short journey about ticks 
Why they happen, how they happen, what they look like, what we assess when we're looking at ticks, and what treatment and management stuff we think about. And I did a little shout out to pandas. It's a bigger story, and I promise you I'm going to talk about it soon. This has been a very, very compressed one. Thank you for listening, and have a great day. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to check the show notes for helpful resources and support. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe to our channel and get notified about the latest episodes. This is Dr. Tagrid, wishing you well.